0: As we've said, every good story has numerous themes that run parallel to each other throughout the story. Usually the better the story, the more themes there are to follow throughout the story. Bible being the best story of all, there are tons of themes to follow throughout it. But in this part of the class, we are tracing some of the Bible's most prominent themes uh, to help us understand the entire story better. Last week, Mike did a great job I heard, I wasn't able to be here, I was in Kids Sunday School, um, i like to go back and listen to it, but um, he traced mission for us throughout scripture, and this week we'll be tracing the theme of idolatry throughout scripture. So when I say idolatry, what comes to mind? Would someone be willing to share very briefly something that comes to mind when you hear the words idolatry, or the word idolatry? Food, okay. <laughs> yeah, can be for me, for sure. Worshiping idols. Okay, worship. Okay, anything else? Anything before God? Maybe one more. FaceTime? Okay. Okay, social media maybe. So, yeah, we'll get into some of those things, but um, those are all true, the things that have been said, but oftentimes idolatry strikes our modern minds as odd or even downright incomprehensible, at least when we think about it in the way that the Bible describes it, because we tend to associate idolatry with ancient religions and cults, stories and mythologies. But the realities of idolatry are not far removed from our culture. In fact, they're not removed at all from our culture. They're just as prevalent today as they always have been. Tim Keller notes, and I put um, part of this quote in your notes. I'll read on past what you have, but he says, Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its, quote, priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society. He goes on to say, We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family, and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. Insightful quote there. Uh, last summer, I encountered um, what, what came to, to be realized as a, a pretty powerful demonstration of idolatry, I would say, and, and even a temple. And this was a modern-day thing in which, again, with our modern minds thinking about idolatry in the past, we would not usually associate uh, Times Square in New York with idolatry, but um, some of the students that went, went with uh, me on that trip to New York City were able to visit Times Square, and um, we had a lot of discussion about it the next day, but it was just clear that in, in many ways in our culture, that place functions as a temple to, to idols. You've got the, the, the bright lights and the flashing billboards and the tall buildings that are just testifying to to power and to, to wealth. Um, unfortunately, there was a lady there who didn't have many clothes on, who was trying to get us to take a picture with her. So you've got you know the gods of of sex um, right there. Uh, we were watching an acrobatic show on the street, and it was entertaining but just the way that they were performing was um, very just, just kind of crass and very arrogant. Um, and so it was, it was clear that um, we couldn't stay there long, that this, this was, in, in many ways, not, not that there's anything wrong with that place in itself, but many of the things that were happening there, were, it, was, it was functioning to, to serve and to worship idols. And I think that myself and many others in our group were not so comfortable there because of all that was happening spiritually and that we were a bit attuned to and so we had pretty good dialogue about that the next day just about things things that were happening there and um you know I realized too that, that in terms of like going to a temple to worship from far away like many people come to this place from from far away to to be there just like a a pilgrimage almost And um, so it had that kind of analogy to it as well. But idolatry, very prevalent there. And the Lord really made that stand out to me and to others in our group. Um, So, idols are just as pervasive in our culture as any other culture. And when you are on mission, whether it's in New York City or here in Lake Mills, just as we're on mission, as it was talked about last week, you will inevitably confront cultural idols. If you aren't confronting cultural idols, then you're likely subtly becoming involved in idol worship yourself. But there are no gods who represent these idols, of course. There's only one true God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things, visible and invisible. He alone is a true God to be given praise and worship by us, humanity, his creatures, But, of course, humanity doesn't worship him completely. The storyline of the Bible has a lot to say about the worship of God and about misdirected worship or idolatry. So we want to be extremely clear by what we mean by idolatry. The word worship was used, um, as I asked people to comment. and Indeed, idolatry is worshiping anything other than God, visible or invisible. This means idolatry can be both external and internal. Uh, Quoting from Tim Keller again, he puts it like this, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. Or someone else puts it, idolatry is to commit ourselves to some part of the creation more than to the creator. And if you have been using the New City Catechism at all in your family, um, their definition is very similar as well. It's um, worshiping create, created things rather than the Creator. So as we try to unpack idolatry, the theme of it through the Bible will be starting in Isaiah 6. So if you have a Bible, you can open up there with me. I've also tried to include a lot of Scripture in your notes as well. Um, but Isaiah 6, this is a well-known prophecy um, we're going to pick up kind of midway through it, but it's kind of a linchpin for, um, for the story of idolatry. And so we're going to start here, and then we'll go back, and then we'll go forward. So um, I'm going to pick up in verse 8 in that passage. I think in your notes it starts in 9, but picking up in verse 8, and it says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Going on, it says, um, this is Isaiah speaking. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So Isaiah here is being commissioned to pronounce judgment upon Israel. Why this judgment? It is because of their idolatry. Of course, you probably know that idolatry is one of Israel's major sins described throughout the Bible, especially in the book of Isaiah, where we are. And then in chapter 6, the first couple of verses we see is a famous praise for God's holiness, where he falls down and says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Maybe familiar with that part. But then Isaiah is declared forgiven by God. Then Isaiah is commissioned to, to deafen and blind Israel to God's word. Then finally, the effects of this judgment after he commissioned or after he's commissioned to deaf and blind than the effects of the judgment. So we are left wondering why God would have Isaiah do this? Why would he say, Prophesy so this people would become dead or um, sorry, blind and deaf? Good question. Glad you asked. Um, So this message is going to harden their hearts. Um, And this is certainly hard to understand. I've struggled with it before. I think we'll have a good understanding of it as we end today. Key to understanding this is to note where we are in the biblical storyline. Again, Israel has sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned, especially through idolatry by this point. And finally, God was pronouncing a verdict of guilty on the nation. We know God is perfectly holy, as Isaiah says and has a glimpse of in this passage. And now he is judging Israel for their idolatry. Of course, idolatry is not mentioned, but the concept is there, and it will become clear again as we go. So you look at the language that is used. Isaiah is to preach to the people that they are to keep on hearing, but not understand. They are to keep on seeing, but not perceive. This language is not new because being blind and deaf refer to idol worship all throughout scripture, and this will become really clear as we go forward. I'm going to read a fair amount of Scripture here. To give us more context for this. In um, Isaiah 42, uh, 17 through 20, says this, "...they are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one?" or blind as the servant of the Lord. He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Again, what idolatry has done to God's people. And then Isaiah 43, verses 8 and 10 it says, Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. Before me no God was formed, now nor shall there be any after me. And then a rather lengthy passage, but I'm going to to read it. This is Isaiah 44, if you want to follow along with me, 44, 8 through 9. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know. No is often associated with uh, hearing, that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. The rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not... Nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have, and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination, shall I fall down before a block of wood? Isaiah is making a crucial point in the story through these passages. Idol-worshippers do not have spiritual eyes, even though they have physical eyes, a blank there in your notes, physical eyes. Even though they have physical ears, they do not spiritually hear. And why is this the case? Looking at Psalm 115, which is the next passage there in the notes, it says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them, idols, those who make them, become like them. So do all who trust in them. So a very, very key principle is developing here in the story. It is that if we worship idols, we will become like the idols, and their likeness will ruin us. This is what Isaiah is to pronounce to Israel. Basically, he's saying to them, Israel, you like to worship idols instead of the one true holy God? Okay, your judgment is that I will make you as spiritually inanimate and spiritually insensitive and lifeless as the idols you worship. You will have eyes, but not see. You will have ears, but not hear. We become like what we worship. If we worship God, we become more like God, though, of course, we'll never be God. If we worship idols, we'll become like them, blind and deaf. Someone has said um, about this chapter, going back to where we started, Isaiah chapter 6, again, where we started, that God commands the idolatrous people to become like the idols they have refused to stop loving. They're worshiping idols. God says, okay, your judgment is to become like these idols, to be blind, to be deaf. In verse 10, he commands Isaiah to make the people like their idols through his prophetic preaching. So people are punished by means of their own sin. But this isn't the beginning of the story. We have, you know, we started kind of in the middle, um, but we're going to go back now a little bit to see the story of idolatry before Isaiah. Can anybody think of a major idol-worshipping event in the life of Israel? Golden calf, right. Very prominent, unfortunately. And uh, I'm sure as we preach through Exodus, we'll, we'll get there eventually. But yes, the golden calf. Um, so there had been, you know, decades of idolatry before Isaiah, and the golden calf is, is a place where probably didn't start there. I think they probably even struggle with idolatry coming out of Egypt, but you see it really clearly here with the golden calf. So Israel is fresh out of their bondage in Egypt. Chapters 1 through 4 of Exodus tell us about the great salvation that God provides. In chapters 19 through 20, God lays out for Israel what it means for them to be his people. They are to reflect the world to the world, his glory, and who he is. To make it clear how to do that, he gives them laws, and the first two of these reflect that he alone is the God to be worshiped. Why? Of course, because he saved them. Then, to make it clear to his people about how they are to worship him, he says that they aren't to make images or statues or other things. But of course, it doesn't take long before they engage in the very thing that God had prohibited. seems from the account that they thought they were honestly worshiping Yahweh but if so they're worshiping him the way they saw him instead of as he really is they created an idol or image out of their liking and desires and what happened Israel came to be described by what they worshiped and this was insightful even as i worked through this curriculum i hadn't seen what i'm about to reveal in this way before but god calls them a stiff-necked people This is an odd phrase, but it has a very ironic meaning. Stiff-necked is a phrase used to describe Israel as rebellious cattle because they were worshiping a calf and thus becoming like it. Just like a stubborn cow that refuses to go in the right direction, idolatrous Israel is stiff-necked. Someone notes, The first generation Israelites did not literally become petrified gold calves like the gold calf they worshipped but they are depicted as acting like out of control and headstrong calves apparently because they are being mocked as having become identified with a spiritually rebellious image of the calf that they had worshiped what they had revered they had come to resemble and that resemblance the characteristic of being stiff-necked was destroying them so we started our story with Isaiah a prophet later in Israel, who's pronouncing judgment on the people of Israel for their idolatry. He said that they have ears but don't hear, eyes but don't see. They have become like the idol they worshipped. But as we went back to the defining, defining event in the first generation of Israel in the Exodus, we see again the pattern there too. The people revered a calf of gold and they became a stiff-necked people. As we know, the story of Israel doesn't progress well at all, unfortunately, on this point about idolatry. It continues to be a major struggle for the nation as they move into the land and deal with the surrounding nations. Their later kings would be judged on how they worshiped God. Did the nation reflect God and his glory rightly by worshiping him in the prescribed way, free of creaturely images? No. This event would define the people of Israel for generations to come. We read about how Scripture looks even back on the people from a few passages here. Psalm 106, 19 through 20. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Second Kings 17, 14 through 15. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. They followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. Hosea four seven, again, this is these all these passages are near to the end of the Old Testament and kind of looking back on, on Israel. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. So I will exchange their glory into shame. In Isaiah, or Jeremiah 2, 5 through 11. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. So this one event would unfortunately in many ways define Israel's existence, the worship of the golden calf at Sinai. When Israel turned to worship idols, they would become stubborn, empty, vain, and lifeless, just like those very idols. And this was their undoing. The golden calf event is not the beginning of the story, though. Before we go forward, we're going to go back just a little bit more to creation, Genesis 1 and 2 not going to spend a lot of time here because I think we're a little bit more familiar with this, but humanity was created, they were created to be reflective beings. God created us in his image, in his likeness, and we were to rule as God's vice-regent over his creation and multiply to spread the, the divine image across the earth. Humanity means that we were created to reflect his character, his attributes, his glory. That means our true humanity is wrapped up in who God is. To be human is to worship Him, or to be most fully human, I would say, is to worship God. Or to put it another way, to be human is to reflect His glory and His image. All humans have been created to be reflecting beings, and they, they will reflect, I believe this is a blank there in your notes, and they will reflect whatever they are ultimately committed to, whether the true God or some object of the created order. Instead of obeying the command of God in Genesis 127 to bring God's glory to the end of the earth, Adam chose to expand his own glory. He committed to self-worship. Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden was ultimately tied to idolatry. That is, Adam became committed to, to, to something other than God. When Adam stopped being committed to God and reflecting his image, he revered something else in place of God and resembled his new object of worship. Thus, at the heart of Adam's sin was turning from God and replacing reverence for God with a new object of reverence, himself, to which Adam became conformed. Because he became an idolater, Adam was unable to fulfill his divine mission and his mandate to rule and subdue the creation. As an image bearer, Adam was to reflect the character of God, which included mirroring the divine glory. Just as Adam's son, his physical son, was in Adam's likeness and image, and was to resemble his human father in appearance and character, so Adam was a son of God who was to reflect his father's image, God's image. This means that the command for Adam to subdue, rule, and fill the earth Includes, first and foremost, that he is a king filling the earth, not merely with offspring, but with image-bearing offspring who will reflect God's glory. So we have at the very beginning of the story, again, this idea that what you revere, you reflect. And then it will lead to your ruin or to your restoration. Adam was ruined by his worship. Israel is ruined by their worship we are either ruined or restored by our worship. Now we're going to jump ahead, bridging the gap, into the New Testament. So we highlight at the beginning that most people do not bow down to physical idols and worship them today. But there is certainly, of course, idolatry in the New Testament as well, but it takes on a new flavor, a different appearance. In each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John... Jesus quotes from this Isaiah 9 or I'm sorry Isaiah chapter 6, 9 and 10 passage, the verses that we started with. In doing so, like Isaiah, Jesus is pronouncing a judgment on the Israel of his time. Now, the Israel in Jesus' time wasn't still bowing down to calves made of gold. Tradition was the object of worship for Israel during Jesus' time. And there's actually a a tool that we've learned in the past, typology, where something um, former functions in a way to represent or to look forward to something that will come later. And it helps us in this regard, because the unbelief and judgment of Israel in Isaiah's day was actually foreshadowing a pattern that anticipated a greater unbelief and judgment in Jesus' day. So we have unbelief and judgment in the Old Testament, and when Jesus comes, still idol worshippers. There's unbelief and judgment. Okay, so the, this pattern was being repeated, but what's at stake is so much greater. Even in Jesus' time, the Israelites were rejecting the word of God in the flesh, just as Israel was, just as sorry, just as Israel then was becoming like what they worshipped, stubborn and spiritually lifeless, having eyes and not seeing, ears but not hearing. The same was happening now in the New Testament. The Israelites of Jesus' day were becoming as spiritually dead as their man-made traditions and rituals. Their tradition was but whitewashed. Jesus had said this in Matthew 23, 27 through 28. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleannesses. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They had become and were becoming what they were worshiping, and that was to their ruin. They committed the ultimate act of false worship to their false god of man-made traditions by murdering the god-man Jesus. So in revering their idols, they killed the image of the invisible god. But thankfully there is hope. So we've said that what you worship, you become like, either for ruin or restoration. In John twelve, Jesus speaks of himself as light, reflecting the light of the Father, and He holds our hope of restoration for those who would believe in Him. Those who believe in Him will reflect Him, not for ruin, but for restoration. Praise God. So the story doesn't stop there, but it continues with Paul and his writings. Idolatry isn't just an an issue for Israel, but with the whole world, all the Gentiles as well. All humanity is to reflect and worship God. Paul in Romans 1, 18 through 28, powerfully demonstrates that idolatry leads to dysfunction in one's relationship to God. And this always leads to then dysfunction in one's relationships with others. Sometimes we can believe this lie that, you know, idol worshiping only affects us, but of course it doesn't because our lives are lived in relationship with others. Paul doesn't leave the the Romans with just a picture of how wrong worship harms, but he also provides a positive picture of it as well when we're worshiping God. So there's this chart in your notes, and there's this kind of contrast that we can draw between Romans 1, 18-28, which describes idolaters. And then Romans 12, 1-2, which describes worshipers of God. So in, in the Romans 1 passage describing idolaters, they're under God's wrath. In contrast, worshipers of God under his mercy. Romans 1, idolaters, they refuse to glorify or thank God. In Romans 12, worshipers of God are sacrificing to him. In Romans 1, idolaters are dishonoring the body. In Romans 12, worshipers of God are offering the body as an act of worship to the Lord. Romans 1, idolaters are—they have misunderstood an idolatrous service in worship, of worship. Um, so even maybe things they're trying to do right are just kind of messed up. Um, and then Romans 12... Uh, Worshippers of God are offering reasonable service of worship. Worship that God approves. Idolaters, Romans 1, have a reprobate mind. In Romans 12, worshipers of God have a renewed mind. Romans 1, idolaters reject the righteousness of God. And then Romans 12, worshipers of God approve the will of God. So, he gives us between those two chapters a real contrast of what life looks like as idol worshipers and what life looks like as worshipers of God. We're not going to turn there, but um, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul also uses examples there from the Old Testament to tell the Corinthians the truth that we've seen in this story that idolaters will be identified with the same dead spiritual nature as the idols to which they passionately commit themselves. I'll say that one again. Idolaters will be identified with the same dead spiritual nature as the idols to which they passionately commit themselves. Of course, the story continues from the writings of Paul into the book of Revelation, where the story ends. And here we see again that we resemble what we revere. Revelation 13, those who worship idols are referred to as earth dwellers. The earth dwellers in Revelation cannot look beyond this earth for their security, which means that they trust in some part of the creation instead of the creator for their ultimate welfare. Thus, people are called earth dwellers because this expresses the object of their trust and perhaps of their very being in that they have become part of the earthly system in which they find security. They have become like it. Because they commit themselves to some aspect of the earth, they become earthly and come to be known as earth dwellers. Thankfully, this isn't the end of the story. So you've gone through the story. One thing is looming over the story. If we resemble what we revere for ruin, how do we we reverse this? How can people be restored who have ears but don't hear, eyes but don't see? So to begin to answer this question again, we go back to Isaiah 6, where we started. There we see that Isaiah, being cleansed by God, made holy, and a reflector of his glory. Chapters later, though the judgment of Israel seems to be coming, there are glimpses of reversal. I'm going to read from Isaiah 29, 9 through 16, and then 18. Says, astonish yourselves and be astonished; blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine; stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, and has closed your eyes, which is the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers, and the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men, when men give it to one who can read, saying, "Read this," he says, "I cannot, for it is sealed." When they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because his people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, all their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. i talking about wonder there, it's, it's judgment. The wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. In that day... So it's judgment and now hope. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Also hopeful in Isaiah 32, 1, 3-4. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. And the tongue of the stammers will hasten to speak distinctly. So one more verse I'm going to read, but we, we saw we had seen that idol worship, idolatry, causes eyes to be blind and ears to be deaf. And now, through Christ and through the, the redemption that He offers, eyes are being opened, ears are being opened to hear and to understand. Then Isaiah 52:15. So shall he sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So God would take some from Israel, and some from the Gentiles, and reverse their idolatry. In the Gospel of Matthew, that we um looked at briefly, right after Jesus' pronouncement of judgment on the blindness and deafness of Israel in his day, he gives hope to some. God, in the coming of his Son, was opening eyes and ears. Matthew thirteen sixteen, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. God is the only giver of spiritual sight and spiritual understanding. Just as Jesus was physically opening eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, he was, even more importantly, doing that spiritually, opening blind eyes, opening deaf ears. While we have seen that idolaters fail to understand, like like their idols fail to understand, they are also blaspheming God's character in their idolatry. They are saying that He has no understanding. But God is the one who made man in his image. He is the potter, we are the clay. He's the only one who can re-image idolaters. He's the only one that can re-image or remake us. And Isaiah and Ezekiel spoke of this future reversal. So, it is in Christ that people formally conformed to the world's image begin to be transformed into God's image. This process of transformation into the divine image will be completed at the end of history when Christians will be resurrected and fully reflect God's image in Christ. They will be resurrected by the spirit imparting power of the risen Christ. They will be resurrected by the... um, Sorry, since it was, they will be resurrected by the spirit imparting power of the risen Christ. Since it was the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, so the Spirit of Christ will raise Christians from the dead at the end of the age. The Spirit's work in people will enable them to be restored and revere the Lord and resemble his image, so that God will be glorified in and through them just as originally intended at the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. So what are the big things that we should walk away with from, um, from this lesson? Of course, understanding the story of idolatry throughout the Bible, but also the story of its reversal. And our main idea has been that uh, we become what we worship, either for ruin or for restoration. We were made to be reflecting beings We can see that in how children mimic their parents or how people desperately try to mimic a celebrity. The reality is people will either reflect God and aspects of his character or they will reflect something else in the world. We as Christians have the message that turns idolaters into worshipers of God. We were once dead and spiritually, spiritually lifeless. By the gospel, God gives eyes and ears and hearts ready to worship Him. So there is no neutrality in our worship. We either revere Him, God, or we don't. We either reflect Him and His glory, or we exchange it for something that has been created. The question that we need to ask is, who or what are we worshiping? Of course. Um, Someone has said that all of us are imitators. We are either being conformed to an idol of the world or to God. Some might think it is possible to exist in a mode of spiritual neutrality in their Christian lives. Some Christians might think that they can go for extended periods of time not reading their Bibles or praying or attending church or having fellowship with other believers. When God's people think this way and act accordingly, in reality, they become subtly conformed to the world instead of God. This is why Paul's encouragement in 1 Corinthians 4 and 1 Corinthians 11 To imitate him as he imitates Christ is important for us individually and as a body. Within the local church, this church, through our discipling, we should be imitating and imaging one another as we image and imitate Christ. So discipling means imitating one another as we imitate Christ, because we are reflected beings. We're going to imitate, we're going to um, naturally go after Something. So that's it. That's it for today. Um, next week, I believe Steve is up. Is that right for teaching? So you can look forward to that. Um, continue thinking about these things as I work through it. Really just powerful teaching, really convicting. And I, I pray that we would go from here and throughout worship today and into the week, just really asking God to reveal to us what our idols are and that we would repent of those things and turn to the living God who opens blind eyes and deaf ears. And that we would have that prayer for those around us too, and that the Lord would also open our eyes to the idolatry around us in the places we live and the people's lives that we're with, and that we would use the gospel to speak into that, and that they would be free from idol worship just as he has freed us. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for Christ, and it's only and completely in Him alone that we hope. And we know, I know from my own mind and heart that um, idol worship is real, and you have redeemed me from that, as you've redeemed many of us here in this room. Sometimes there can be still a struggle against those things. And so we pray that you would convict us and open our eyes and our our ears again, in, in new ways, and to understand the idols that we struggle with, and that we would repent and, con- and continue to, to trust and to worship you alone in new ways, and that we would we would be willing as we go out in the world to to confront the idols that have people enslaved and um, that keep people from worshiping and experiencing life with you. So we pray that you would give us. Boldness and wisdom and discernment and intentionality and love as we go on mission through a culture filled with idols. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.